Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Morning again. If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Judges. We're going to begin looking at verse or chapter 13 rather. You know, God has always acted in surprising ways to save his people. And one of the ways that God acts towards salvation is through miraculous birth. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at what, what God is doing through these miraculous births and the, the foreshadowing that he is doing. When everything is dark and all hope is lost... And, and remember, we have the Old Testament because it is our schoolmaster, it is our teacher uh, that points, that, that educates us about how God works today, how God works in our own life, how God worked 2,000 years ago. So the Apostle Paul actually tells us that is everything, everything that we have from the Old Testament is not there just to support a story, it's there to show us the consistency of God's character and of God's nature and how he works so that when we live in our life, we can compare that to how God has worked and to see his consistency and his faithfulness to who he is and what he does. Christmas is all about how a faithful God accomplishes the unexpected, the astonishing, the unthinkable, the unimaginable in order to save his people. And it's what God continues to do. If this is how God has always acted, then maybe in our brokenness and in our messed up world, uh, God has something to show us for our world today as well. So before I read Judges 13, it's very important that we have the context because the context is the story. Uh, up to this point, Israel has been in captivity for 430 years. In fact, for those of you who love history, and I recognize everyone doesn't, so if you don't, just take a quick nap. Uh, in 1876 BC is when Israel went into captivity into Egypt and they were there until uh, somewhere around 1476, about 430 years when they were released from there 40 years later after Moses led them out. Uh, for 40 years they wandered in the wilderness. So it was somewhere in the neighborhood of about 1406 that they make their way into the promised land. And you know, that signifies you know, Moses' death on the mountain in some obscure unknown place. And Joshua takes the helm and he leads people into the promised land victorious. And, and if you remember the story very clearly, and not that you have to, but it's, it's important to know that the 12 tribes then inherit different portions of the promised land. Now, we know in the spiritual sense, the promised land isn't Israel. It's not Canaan. The promised land is the Christian walk because there's still battles to be engaged in. There's still wars that have to be fought. There are still issues of living that has to take place. So the promised land isn't heaven as many people try to make it. The promised land is rigorous. It's difficult, but it's where God's presence helps God's people to possess the inheritance that God gave them. That's what we're all living out right now. So when you look at that through that spiritual narrative, it's important for us to see 
uh, how we are to walk and the empowerment and the presence of God that we have as well. In fact, when you see that God establishes the temple, that's important to the Israelites, but God has established the temple in us as well because where the Holy Spirit dwells is inside of us. And so it's important for us to see those things. A generation later, so this is the the end of all of those first generation leaders that possess the promised land. They have all died now. The ones who followed Joshua and, and said, yes, we can, they just died. The year is about 1350 when, uh, when that last generation falls away. And that's roughly the time frame where the judges begin. Now, that's not judges chapter 13. That's when the judges began. And God gave Israel these judges, these leaders, not kings, but judges to help them remember who they were and to, and, and to process uh, through what does it look like to establish a possession of the inheritance of the promised land. Because it's still going to require a lot of work. In fact, what God told them was when you go in, every tribe is going to have a certain area of land. And it is the tribe's responsibility to drive out the inhabitants. Now, I don't have time to go into a whole lot of detail as to why that is so important. But believe me, uh, God is very, very consistent. Who these people were, God gets to judge them. Uh, our responsibility is to be obedient. So I'm not going to go into why God is uh, accurate or validated in saying, kill them all. Uh, maybe one day we'll get back to that, but uh, I think you'll be surprised at, at the answer. So even though Israel now for, for 40 years, 50 years or so, has been has settled into the promised land, the 12 areas of Israel, they have not possessed it yet. They were really struggling with this. In fact, they were washing in and out of whoever lived in their area. Uh, Rather than defeating them and possessing, they kind of absorbed into their culture. And Israel, most of the nations and the tribes of Israel actually turned to a lot of idolatry and, and, and a lot of immorality. And, and they married many people that they shouldn't have married. They even resorted, many of the tribes resorted to child sacrifices and destroyed their own generations at the hands of these false gods like Molech and Dagon and, and, and others. So it's important for us to see that even though they inherit the land... They don't live empowered in the land. They, they are delivered people from slavery, but they're not possessing the land. They're settling in it. They're becoming comfortable in it. And so as they take on the character of these pagans, God gives them under their oppression. All of them. So tribe after tribe after tribe, they fall into bad habits. They forge bad character. God gives them under slavery to these different regions. They begin to cry out to God for deliverance because they realize finally what they have done. And what God does is through their repentance, he delivers them and then gives them peace. He does this through judges. 
So one judge rules and then another judge rules. And every time it's like this spiraling effect. They do this, Judges 13 is going to be the sixth time that they do this in the book of Judges so far. They rebel, they become oppressed, they cry out to God, they repent, they are delivered, and they live in peace. It's in times of peace and prosperity that their eyes shift from God's sovereignty and God's power and shifts to their own comfort. The same thing is true for us. God has done the exact same things for his people. We have been delivered from the sin of slavery. And yet, for some strange reason, in that peaceful time in Christ, we turn our eyes back to the world. And we become very comfortable here. And when we are experiencing the, the full weight of that, we repent. And God restores and redeems and rebuilds, gives us peace, only for us to turn right back to the world again. So this is where we are. It's important for us to understand that context because we're going to make that application to our own lives later. So, so it's... it's well, let's just look at Judges chapter 13. I already said this is the sixth spiral circle. They keep getting further and further away from the Lord. In fact, this is the lowest point in Israel's history, Judges chapter 13. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord gave them to the hand of the Philistines. So who gave them to the hand of the Philistines? This isn't the Philistines' power that's overcoming God's people. This is God's judgment. Gave them into the hand of the Philistines for how long? That's a powerful number in Scripture. There's a certain man of Zorah, the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come to his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb and he shall begin to save from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came to her, told her husband, a man of God came to me and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I love that, even in English. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. She knew what her husband was going to ask. Right? But he said to, to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, so then drink no wine or strong drink. Eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to, this day of his, to the day of his death. This is, this is significant because the Nazarite vow was for a predetermined amount of time. Uh, and it, it was a vow that you could take, you would consecrate yourself, not a priest. Priests couldn't take it. They had to live like this all the time. But you could take a, a, a layman, if you will, and they could consecrate themselves for a predetermined amount of time to show their loyalty to the Lord. Uh, this is one instance where the person taking the vow didn't take the vow, and it's a lifelong vow. So, verse 8, Then Manoah prayed and the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to teach us and uh, what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. 
So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose, went after his wife, and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? He said, and this is a clue, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? What is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. In other words, you know, don't bother yourself with all your questions. Just, just do what I told you. I've already told you what to do. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat anything unclean, any unclean thing. All that I command her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it for the Lord. For Manoah did not know that the angel, uh, that he was the angel of the Lord. He just thought he was a man who came to visit. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name so that when your words come true, we may honor you? In other words, you're a prophet. We want to give you honor as a prophet. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now we know who it is. Now Manoah and his wife were watching and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. And Manoah knew that the angel that he was an angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, and this is how we know now that this is a Christophany, this is Christ in the Old Testament. He said, we shall surely die for we have seen God. We know no, no man can see God and live. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he wouldn't have, shown, he wouldn't have accepted the burnt offering and the grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things were announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him at Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtaol. Well, first I want us to consider, well, we'll consider a couple of things today. But the first thing is how God saves an undeserving people. It's not really obvious in this text, but it is super obvious in the context of Judges 13. So if you want to go back and read, I'm going to give you several passages of Scripture. You can go back and read and verify these things over the next week. Because by chapter 13 of Judges, we are at the bottom of Israel's spiral. In fact, if you look at verse 1, it even says the Israelites were doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so the Lord delivers them over to the Philistines. Now, the Philistines were a very, very pagan people who had come from the sea. They were seafaring people, and they had settled on the coast of the Mediterranean, just south of the land that was issued to the tribe of Dan. Now that's, uh, again, very interesting in that most of Dan was surrounded on the coast by the Philistines and they were working their way north on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And they had established themselves very, very firmly in this land. The Philistines were so successful that the Israelite tribe that was just to their north 
Dan had actually abdicated their task. Now, when they had first reached the promised land, they were told to subdue everyone who lived there. But the Philistines were tough, and they were mean, and they were incredibly wicked. And Dan didn't have much fight in him, talking about the tribe. You can read that in Joshua chapter 19, and you can also, again, see that later in Judges chapter 18, how Dan had such a hard time driving out any of the Canaanites in that territory that um, the large group of them actually left. They were kind of in the southwest portion of the promised land. These cats didn't even move to another tribe's area. They moved all the way through the tribe's area up into the northeast part of, uh, of the area to a land that wasn't even in the promised land. In fact, most of the Danites fled. Very few of them were left, and they were the ones who couldn't travel as well. And this small group was left to fend for themselves. And by the time we get to Judges 13, the Philistines are already in control of the Danites for 40 years, which, by the way, is longer than any oppression had taken place since captivity in Egypt. I want you to notice something else here. All the previous stories, all of the other ones... At the end of their time of oppression, they recognized what had happened to them and they begin to cry out to the Lord. Look at the verse here where it says that they cried out to the Lord. You won't find it. They don't. After the fifth time, they don't even recognize they're in oppression anymore. They don't even see it, they don't sense it. They're comfortable. In oppression. Isn't that a dangerous thing? God has given them over to the Philistines and they don't even know it. They're living under bondage to pagans and they don't know it. They've become so hard hearted to the things of the world, they don't recognize the disciplining hand of the Lord. I think that is significant. They're supposed to drive these people out. They're supposed to have dominion over them. And instead, they've begun to think and act like them. You couldn't even tell the difference between one to the other. Their oppression was normalized. This was part of the judgment of God. In fact, if you want to make sense of this, how could these people live like that? It's pretty simple. In in Romans chapter 1, spiritually speaking, it says that when people who have been given a possession of the inheritance of God himself, but when they become normalized in a pagan culture, what does God do? He gives them over to their reprobate minds. He lets them think that how they're thinking is normal, is right. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines. It's the worst part of oppression is that Israel didn't care as the people of God that they were under the discipline 
of God. The most severe judgment that God can bring is when he gives us over to our sin and we don't feel the the shame, we don't feel the guilt, we don't feel the conviction that one time we felt. When we were right with God, when we were fired up for the Lord and we felt that, not strict, but we felt that closeness, that desire to please him, and then we kind of get over it and we normalize. There was a time in our life when we had convictions about some things. We don't have those same convictions anymore. And sometimes we consider it freedom or growth. It might just be the disciplining of the Lord. Allowing our hard hearts to have what it has wanted all along. Sometimes we think that God is pleased with our sin. Sometimes we think that maybe God doesn't see it or doesn't recognize it as sin But it's the worst place to be. You see, we often recognize it as freedom. We recognize it as maybe growth or permission or spiritual evolution. But it's not. This freedom allows us then to redefine truths. And then we begin to reinterpret Jesus. And this is what Jesus said, but this is what Jesus means. And before long... We live exactly like the world, and God gives us permission to. Listen, let me tell you, when God agrees with everything you think, it probably isn't God. And this is the condition that Israel is currently in. There are people who have repeatedly in this generation sinned against God, who in God's judgment have become so hardened and so content in their sinfulness, they are utterly undeserving of God's mercy and of God's grace. Now, it's super easy for us to judge Dan, for us to look at him and to say, boy, he knew better. But when I say he, you know, I'm talking about the whole tribe. They, they should know better. But let me ask you, when we reflect that up on ourselves, I wonder if we give ourselves the same judgment that we would quickly give Dan that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. What does it mean to sin? Well, we all know if we were to take the children's church answer, to sin means to miss the mark, right? We know that. It's the Greek word hamartia, which means to miss, literally, to, to, to miss the target that you're aiming at. What is the target that we're aiming at? The glory of God through the Son, Jesus Christ. That's what we're aiming at. So when we fall short of that glory of God, that is sin. And we have all fallen short of the glory of God and missed the mark. But even as Christians walking through this life, we are constantly missing the mark. Now, the Christian life isn't about recognizing sin only. It's also about recognizing the purpose and the mission that God has called us to. We're always going to stumble through this life. But recognizing that we are an undeserving people sets us up to appreciate the mercy and the grace of God unlike any other. It also means, and I think we fall short of this full definition, the word sin means to miss the mark or to fall short, but it also means and to fail to grasp the prize. So to miss out on your share. And that's exactly what Dan is doing here and all the other tribes, but this story is about the people of Dan. Not only have they fallen short of what God had commanded them to do, but they were also failing to grasp the prize, the inheritance. 
their share in the portion of God. Let me ask you, and we'll make quick application of this here. Is there any sin in this world that you are content with in your own life? Is there areas of your eyes or your hands or your mouth that you give the benefit of the doubt that at one time in your walk with Jesus you wouldn't have? Have you already arrived and are content with your fallen character in this world that we're supposed to subdue? And by the way, subduing is the making disciples part. To driving, driving out the pagans, but giving a testimony of the work of Jesus Christ is what we're called to do. It's exactly the same thing. We now, as the people of God, are taking possession of the promised land, the kingdom of God. And it is our responsibility to, as we go throughout this promised land that we lived in, we are to take dominion over it. But not by force, but by love. And to make disciples. To turn people from their pagan ways and to see them come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's what we're called to do. But how often have we, now as the people of God, grown comfortable in this pagan land and abdicated? And we move as far away from the purpose that God gave us as we can possibly get. And we've left only a few back there to do all the work. What a perfect story this one is up into Judges chapter 13. What sins in your life have you grown comfortable with? Have you made peace with? The truth is we're all like the Israelites. Every generation of us is like the Israelites. And we, if we're not careful, will become hardened to sin and we will grow accustomed to it just like they did. Every time that you hear God's word, every time that you hear your conscience, the spirit in you, you either respond in faith and obedience or you harden your heart. And we must be intentional about hearing the voice of God because that hardening of our heart has a cumulative effect. Over time, it becomes more and more difficult to be softened. Have you ever nursed a secret sin, secret thought, a lust, an inappropriate relationship, an addiction? And as long as you keep it secret, I mean, you may know it's wrong, but every time you can get over it pretty quickly. It's amazing how hard our consciences can get. We have a, an amazing ability to compartmentalize our, our lives. But in our secrecy, in our hypocrisy, our hearts harden and we move on. God has given us a land to take possession of. He's given us the authority to walk in this kingdom. But we've grown comfortable in it. And it's not comfort from God. It's comfort in our sin. And we need to cry out to God for help. When we recognize it, we cry out to him for help. And we, and we show him that we recognize that we are not who he has called us to be. And we ask for his help. We ask him to show us our sin, to pray that he would give us a sensitive spirit and to confess 
our sin. And I know many of us are here saying, you know, Christian life's not about sin. Well, it shouldn't be about sin. But listen to what John had to say about it in 1 John 1, 8 and 9. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Obviously, sin, even though we are saved and we are the people of God, it can still be a stumbling block for us as we take possession in the land. Here's the hope. God brings about judgment time after time after time, and he sets about saving his people from that judgment. Do you see the irony there? God establishes the judgment, and then he establishes the delivery. And, of course, we're undeserving, and we did it to ourselves, but by God's grace, his grace is greater than our sin. His grace is greater than our stupidity. The God who delivers Israelites over to them is now going to deliver them from them. So here's the first thing that I want you to write down. The God who judges is also the God who saves. The God who judges is also the God who saves. And that's important because many of us start feeling a little bit nervous when we think about where, what comfort level we are in making disciples in this world and are we on mission, are we living according to his purpose or have we grown comfortable in our idolatry? We start feeling the condemnation of God but know this, when you feel the condemnation that comes from that kind of living, when you feel the oppression, just know the God who brings discipline also brings salvation. So let's shift. I want to shift in the story to verse 2. How's that? So Manoah and his wife are probably, at least for what we know, the most unlikely couple to bring about any sort of delivery device. We see in verse 2 that they are from which tribe? Dan. And they live in Dan. They are not the uh, upward mobility type that abdicated and ran away. Either they were too old or they were too unwilling. Whatever the case may be, they are not a likely couple for this responsibility. Clearly, this is not a family of warriors. Manoah seems to be a, a, a pretty simple farmer. To add to his obscurity, you can also add impossibility because they are childless. Not just childless, but in Hebrew, because a lot of people are childless, but the word in Hebrew for barren actually means sterile. So it's not that they're just childless. They're incapable of bearing a child. It seems that God has a special place for the barren because this couple's barrenness makes them per, uh, perfectly, practic, per, uh, particularly useful to God's purpose here. Now, that doesn't always mean that it happens this way, but what it does mean is that God is at work through everything that we consider a setback. 
So here's a little cute phrase for you to write in your Bible somewhere. For every setback in your life, God considers it a setup. So many times we're kind of taken aback when we don't get our way, but for every setback, because God is at work for something even better. So the angel of the Lord appears to this couple. Who is the angel of the Lord? Well, Manoah's wife describes him as a man of God, verse 6. But there's something supernatural about him, of course. Certainly situations in the Old Testament where there are angels or messengers of, of God that comes and do service. But here the angel is himself divine. In verse 18, it doesn't reveal his name because he's wonderful. In fact, the Hebrew word there means, why would I tell you this? Because you wouldn't understand my name if I told you. In verse 19, the writer of this testament refers to the angel as the Lord. This isn't the first time where God appears to speak to people to carry out his purposes. But... This is very important, and let me share with you why I believe that it is important that this is the Son of God himself. Because despite Israel's intentional sinfulness, God's presence is still with them. That is so important for us to get here. Just drawing this out of the passage. Even, because, even though their sinfulness is huge and they're under the oppression of, of the Philistines... God's presence is still with them. The angel of the Lord has come to bring Manoah's wife a message. She's barren. God is going to work a miracle in her womb. She believes it a whole lot faster than Sarah believed it. Now, this son's going to be a Nazarite from birth, and you can read more about the Nazarite vow in Numbers chapter 6 if you'd like to read that. But the Nazarite vow, we already talked about it, has a few caveats. Number one, they, can, they have to abstain from wine and any other alcoholic drinks under the entire predetermined time. They are to avoid anything that would make them ceremonially unclean, including any dead thing. They cannot come into contact with anything that is dead. And the sign of their devotion is their hair. They are not allowed to cut their hair anywhere during the entire time of consecration. So for Samson, that means his lifetime. This is the same vow that we find John the Baptist making for his entire life. Usually they choose it. This is chosen for Samson. You say, well, did Samson have free will? Or what about free will here? So here's my, here's my rule about free will. I don't know. Just to be honest, I am a free will Baptist. And I will tell you, when the Bible speaks of free will, I'll be hardcore about it. But when the, when the Bible teaches stuff like this, I'm going to be hardcore about it. I think sometimes God circumvents here. Doesn't seem Samson had much of an option. Other times, he does have an option as to whether or not he will live that out. We won't get into that. This isn't about his life. This is about his birth. What would the service be here? Just uh, try to stick with me for a few more moments. Well, verse 5, and it's very important. The wording is very important. He will begin the deliverance. That word deliverance actually means salvation. He will begin the salvation of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now, this boy would be a warrior and alone he will fight for his people. Sort of a preview of our Savior. 
Well, in the rest of the narrative, we see a number of very interesting exchanges between Manoah and his wife. Manoah's wife tells her husband, uh, you know, about what happened. He's not really content, or I don't know if he doesn't believe her, or maybe he doesn't believe the messenger. It's really kind of kind of unsure of who he distrusts and who he trusts. Um, he believes, but he disbelieves at the same time. It's also interesting that it seems that Manoah's wife cares about his character. How will he live? And Manoah cares about what's he going to do? What's his mission? You know what a dad is thinking there? I mean, I've always been thinking about being a dad. So if I'm going to have a son and he's going to be this kind of son, how do I prepare him? And what does the angel of the Lord say? No, no, no. This isn't about you at all. You just do what I told you. It's very, very ironic. In fact, I think if it translated directly into English, he would, the angel would say, just get out of the way and obey me. Don't think, just obey. So Manoah comes at the angel of the Lord with all of his questions, but the angel basically repeats the same directions. How can I make a name how, how can I make a man out of him? And, and the Lord is saying, this really is all about my deliverance. It's not about what you can do, Manoah. This boy will be great because of God. The only instructions worth repeating are the exact same instructions that I already gave your wife. This is it. Here it is. Manoah's wife is to avoid any alcoholic drink and don't eat anything unclean. And do everything that I've commanded. So if Manoah has any part to play in any of this, it's to support his wife and to help her fulfill those commands during her pregnancy. That's, that's it. So Manoah invites the angel to eat with them. The Lord is not interested in a meal. Maybe a burnt offering to the Lord as the smoke is going back to heaven. The Lord hops in and ascends. We'll see that in late, great detail about 1,500 years from here. We'll see Jesus do that again. It's hard to know exactly what's going on with Manoah. <clears throat> Might be that he was doubtful about what his wife told him or maybe doubtful about his own ability or needed to see it for himself or it could be that he was just a simple farmer and he had a lot of questions. But whatever it is, here's the clear part that I want us to draw out from this. And each week, these are going to pile up on each other. God is patient. It would have been very easy for the Lord to say, I do not repeat myself, right? He has no problem using someone as unlikely as Manoah and his wife. Just think about this. The Lord shows up to an undeserving people who are living in open rebellion against God and tells a woman, here's what I'm going to do. And her husband says, I want you to tell me. But instead of telling him, he goes back and tells the woman the same thing and says, now, go get your husband. Husband comes, and we're going to go through this again. The Lord takes up his time to repeat his message that he already given one time. Does that show us anything about the grace and the mercy and the care of a God who is so incredibly patient with us, he just keeps putting up with our unbelief? Let me ask you this. What do you think it is in your life that makes you stand out to be used by God? I want you to think about that for a moment. What is it? When you think about being used of God, what is the thing that you would say, well, here's, here's kind of where my, strength, my strengths are. I, I don't know what yours may be. I can 
contemplate on what some of mine may be, but, but what is it about you that makes you stand out where you would say, here's what God would use. Here's where I'm naturally gifted already. It would make sense. And I want you to recognize this. That's probably not where God will use you. It doesn't mean that he won't use you at all that way, but that's how easy would it be for you to be used in a naturally gifted way and take the credit for it. Or when other people look at you, they would say, yeah, that makes sense that God would use you that way. Now listen, let me tell you, sometimes we use the weaknesses in our life and we say, well, God would never use these things, a sickness, our age, our how long we've been a Christian, our sin that we've overcome. I mean, we try to keep these things down. God would never use them. But listen to me very closely. Those usually, our weakest moments, are the ones where God can demonstrate his greatest strengths. The thing you need to be careful about, one of your greatest weaknesses is leaning into your strengths. Where we need to move is to lean into our weaknesses because in our weaknesses, what? He is strong. You will never, never reveal God more in prosperity than you do in your difficulty. That's what God is teaching us right here. And and realize that God may not use you for glamorous things. He may not use you for spotlights and great calls of action. Now, don't get me wrong. What's going to happen here is Manoah's son is going to turn a nation on its ear. But Manoah's responsibility is to make sure that his wife doesn't drink and that she pays strict attention to her diet. That's how God uses Manoah in his entire life. Now, before some of you, well, I'm going to go there. People are going to be curious about your faith, not as you prosper, but as you persevere. Well, let me shift again. When the angel left, you wonder what Manoah and his wife thought the very next morning? This is incredible. I want you to think about this. Can you imagine the next morning when they wake up and the angel of the Lord is gone, but their experience with him changed everything about their life? They're still married. They're still farmers. In fact, nothing changed, and everything changed. Their work and their lives have new meaning now. Why? Because they had an experience with the Lord that had changed them, right? Now, every meal is obedience to the Lord. Everything that they do, everything that they think has meaning because now they know the mission. Listen, when you pray and you seek the direction of the Lord and you turn from your wicked ways and you follow Him in obedience, everything that you do is an act of obedience to the Lord. And every act of obedience is worship. That's when you begin to hit the mark. Every thought, every meal, every, every breath is to the glory of God. 
Now God was, we see that in verse 24, the woman gave birth to a son, named him Samson, grew and the Lord blessed him and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him. Now God was preparing him to be a deliverer, a, a savior type for Dan. And then a savior type for Israel. But notice in verse 5, again, he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Not that he will defeat the Philistines. Not that he will accomplish this, but he will begin this. And if you know the story of Samson, you know that actually Samson never delivered Israel from the Philistines. It didn't happen. He single-handedly killed thousands, ten thousands of Philistines throughout his life, even sacrificing his own life in the end. But the Philistines still remained in power. But by his power, Samson would stir up the Philistines to war against Israel and stir up Israel to war against the Philistines, which they had grown comfortable, and at least now they are fighting. And God was going to preserve the identity of his people through Samson. And it wouldn't be much longer before God would bring up another very unlikely choice of a spirit-filled king who would finally defeat these Philistines. But in Samson, we see a picture of the salvation that we need. We need more than tips and keys and secrets and steps for saving ourselves. What we need is the deliverance that can only come from obedience to Jesus Christ. That's what we need. We need a Savior. We don't need a sense of saving. We don't need the directions to be saved. We need a Savior. We need someone to come and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. God's act here begins to prepare our hearts to receive another miraculous birth. 1,500 years later. Now, if you're not a Christian, this is what I want you to walk away with. If you are a Christian, this is what I want you to walk away with. This is what the story of the entire Scripture is all about. We are those who live far with a far greater enemy than any army or any king. Our oppression is far worse than this physical bondage Because we all live under the bondage of sin, death, and Satan. Listen, I want you to understand this very clearly. As Christians, we haven't won simply because we have settled in here in our faith. We must possess the land that we live in. We must drive out the darkness. We must Make disciples. And if you're satisfied and content living the Christian life that you're living now, then you have acclimated with the enemy. And you have neutralized your ability to reveal the deliverer that would set the captives free. We are those who are blind and enslaved our rebellion and sin our inability to act and our unholy living and our unholy thinking and our rationalizing and our excuses have done nothing to bring the light of Jesus Christ to bear. But here's the good news. God has sent us a Savior even greater than Samson. All Samson could do was to begin a work. Jesus 
completed the work. And when he completed it, he even said, it is finished. Born miraculously of a virgin of two very unlikely parents, filled with the Holy Spirit. But unlike Samson, Jesus was perfect without sin, marked by perfect love, bringing healing to the sick and the afflicted, speaking words of truth. At the end of his life, he was betrayed by those that he loved, and he was mocked, and he was tortured by his enemies. He was nailed to a cross, and just like Samson, with his arms outstretched, he gave up his own life for the redemption of his people. Listen, I'm not calling you to clean up your life. In fact, the, the longer I walk with Christ, the more futile I see it being and trying to tell people to clean up their life. I hear people all the time talk about, you know, I, I'll come to the Lord once I get this thing figured out or once I get clean enough or once I, whatever the case may be. Understand this, in the worst darkness of your life, that's when Jesus already draws near. Whatever it could possibly be that is keeping you away from the Lord, even as a Christian, whatever it is that's keeping you away from the Lord, know this. He's already with you. He's not offended by your sin. But he also loves you too much to leave you in it. The deliverance is for you. While we were in sin, Christ died for us. God didn't send a Savior when Israel had finally gotten right. In fact, he waited to send a Savior when they didn't even know enough to cry out to him. That's when the time was right. That's when they're going to be most vulnerable to receive. <laughs> no, they were happily at peace with their enemies. And it's the Savior who delivers them. So it is with Jesus. Listen, he's not waiting for us to clean our lives up. He's saving us today. Now, does that mean that I, I'm saying that it doesn't really matter how you live? That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is it doesn't matter how you're living. Jesus loves you. And when you recognize and have a firm grip of that love, it'll change the way you see yourself. It'll change the way you walk. It'll change the way you think. And now, instead of living in self-deprecation, I'm working my best to hit the mark of God's glory with every thought, taking every thought captive. Every breath belongs to Jesus Christ. This story tells me that I'm undeserving, but he loves me anyway. That he uses the most unlikely things in my life to bring restoration and deliverance. Now, he does call us to stop living for sin and to place our hope in him. But listen to me. He has given us, as the people of God, a land to claim. He's given us a mission. He's given us responsibility. He's given us the command. And if we keep kicking around in the dust like we're slaves, that's exactly what we're going to possess, a life of slavery. But he's called us to greater than that. He's called us to more than that. He's called us to thrive. He's offered us himself as the power and the redemption to possess the land. But he doesn't send us just a Samson to us. He sent Jesus to us, and now Jesus in us. 
You do not see that the land that we are to claim, we're not waiting for something else to happen. He is in us. We who were dead in our spirits have been born again. Do you realize that we could not produce spiritual life? We were barren. The most unlikely candidate to bring about the salvation of the world. And yet, what does God do? In that barrenness, He brings life, He produces a Savior. Christ in us, the hope of glory. And I want to remind you of who you are this morning. You are the most unlikely character to be given the opportunity to just obey. And the Savior is being born in us. But not just for us, but for the world in the land that we possess, God is calling us to more. Don't get comfortable here. Don't give yourself the benefit of the doubts here. Stop making excuses here. I'm too weak. My story's too bad. My sin's too dark. Whatever the things you keep telling yourself, know this. Jesus Christ is produced in you. The Spirit of God is produced in you to possess the land, the inheritance. We are joint heirs with Jesus. Christmas reminds us that God is with us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reminder today of who we are and whose we are. And who is in us? We no longer live. Christ lives in us. And so today as we remember, I just, I pray, Lord, that you would, um, you would raise us up. I pray that if there be sin in our life that keeps us comfortable here, you would reveal that to us. And Lord, if we don't listen to your spirit, I pray that you would bring people into our life that would, that would reveal that to us. Give us a Nathan who can point at us with love and say, Here, here's something you need to consider. Lord, I pray that we would have those kinds of righteous friends in our life who wouldn't just be comfortable with us, that we would spur one another on. And so, Lord, this morning, if you will reveal to us the things that hold us back, I pray that we would confess them to you and we would repent of them and that you would deliver us. We thank you for Jesus Christ and all that we have in him this morning. Church, I'm going to ask you if you would just to keep your eyes closed and your head bowed. And, and I, want, I want us just to spend the last minute or two while we're together just uh, asking the Lord to search our hearts. This is why this command is found so many times in Scripture. Search me, Lord. Because listen, we are the world's worst at identifying our own sin. So search me, O Lord, and know if there's any unclean thing in me and cleanse me. 
Will you take just a minute and ask the Lord if he would search your heart? See where you're giving yourself freedom, where you've grown content and comfortable and giving him permission to deliver you so that you could continue his deliverance in the land. sensitive to Holy Spirit. You need to listen to the Holy Spirit. So what I'm about to say doesn't let you off the hook. But if the Lord doesn't reveal maybe things that don't take it as a sign of freedom. Here's something I pray all the time. Lord, if there's something, would you bring somebody into my life that can reveal it? Maybe I'm so hard-headed and hard-hearted I can't see it from here, but would you bring someone into my life who loves me that would say, here's here's some things that I need to bring to your attention and mean it. And these are the kind of friends that we should have, friends that we can trust, friends that we can grow with, friends that we can testify of God's goodness and growth. First, you need to listen to the Spirit because He wants to speak to you. This is why we need each other. This is why God calls us family. It's to grow together. Iron sharpens iron. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the promises that we have in Christ. I pray that you would raise us up, Lord. Though our tribe may be small and our tribe may be weak, we pray that in our weakness, Lord, you use the smallest, most obscure the most fearful tribe to reveal the greatest judge in Israel's history. Lord, may we be that people. May you use our obscurity and the impossibility of our ability to do a work through us that might spark a revival, that might spark a renewal, that might spark a movement possess. Lord, don't let us get in the way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.